Here We Stand, Singing the Hymns of the Reformation, is an album of hymns that were sung at various conference locations throughout the years. It includes A Mighty Fortress, Christ Jesus Lay in Death's Strong Bands, Lord, Keep Us Steadfast in Your Word, and seven others. The album and its ten tracks are available for download on Apple iTunes, Amazon MP3, and Google Play. CDs are also available for purchase. For more information on Here We Stand, singing the hymns of the Reformation, head over to www.higherthings.org slash herewestand. Here We Stand, singing the hymns of the Reformation, daring you to sing Lutheran. Hey, hello, welcome to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. As always, uh, Pastor Christopher Gillespie is doing all the important Mm -hmm. work. That's true. Uh, What work is that? Oh, I I have a job. I don't know. You had one job. One job! You had one job. (laughs) And you you blew it. Clicks, buzzes, pulleys, levers, trusses. It's all there. He's he's doing it all. Buttons, knobs. Buttons, knobs. Flashing meters. Little flotsam and jetsam. Mm-hmm. All that stuff. Magic sauce. And I am Pastor Domin Riley. Uh, that Szechuan sauce. That magic sauce. <laughs> and this is as Lutheran as it gets. This week, uh, for those of you listening in the future, our animal-human hybrid overlords, we are, oh yeah, first, we are coming to you live from the Behavioral Sciences Unit in the lower level of Higher Things Headquarters in Beijing, China. So, mm-hmm. um, hello to all of our listeners in, in China. Thank you for joining us. Lab, uh, subscribe right? to the podcast. We are, man. We are mobile. We are constantly on the move because uh, this this podcast is not sanctioned or licensed by the <laughs> Nevada Athletic Commission. Is it peer-reviewed? <laughs> I think so. We have listeners, is, don't we? Is it peer-reviewed? We have a few. We I don't think we're the C-SPAN 2 of podcasts anymore. Ooh. Might be like primetime C-SPAN. But go to the iTunes. Go to... Are we on Google? Uh, Google Play. Just iTunes? Well, I don't know. Google Play? Certainly, we're on iTunes. Need to reviews on iTunes. That's where most people... Yeah, that's where most people find us. And that links up to all the podcast players like uh, Overcast and uh, TuneIn and whatever you use. Go to iTunes, subscribe, like us. Give us positive reviews. This is as Lutheran as it gets. And as I mentioned in the last podcast, it would be helpful if we were the most popular Lutheran podcast in the world so that we can live up to the pretentiousness of our podcast hmm. name. We really appreciate you uh, buying into the joke uh, and enjoying what we are putting out there. We enjoy the feedback as well. If there's any theologians, Lutheran theologians in particular, you would like us to read or a book or or whatnot uh, that you would like to hear us kind of discuss, uh, shoot us a text, shoot us an email, write a review again with the name of theologian or theologians you'd like us to uh, have a discussion about. We like to do that stuff too. But this week, since we are celebrating the Reformation at the recording of this podcast, I thought we would read from the most Lutheran of Luther's works, The Bondage of the Will. You just made an assertion. Are you going to be able to defend that one? I did make an assertion. That was very that was very Lutheran as well to make an assertion. <laughs> In the old days, that that used to be the uh, what other other church groups would say about Lutherans is that we make too many assertions. Mm. We don't do enough synthesis. We don't equivocate enough. So and why is the bondage of the will the most Lutheran of the Luther 
writings. Well, I say that because Luther himself said it's his favorite work, <clears throat> that this and the large catechism, not the small catechism, the large catechism and the bondage of the will, according to Luther himself, were his two best favorite works. And that, as he said, after I die, I hope everything else that I wrote is burned, except these two. Right. So these are the desert island tracks, right? Exactly. And yet, the other reason that I think this is Luther at his most Lutheran, if you look at when he wrote this in 1525, why he wrote it, all of that, which you can read about in uh, Heiko Obermann's book, Luther, um, what is it, Man Between God and the Devil, a little bit in James Kittleson's book, Luther the Former, but mostly in Martin Brecht's trilogy, uh, biography of Luther, that Martin Brecht trilogy is really... It's not the, the easiest read. He's not necessarily the greatest writer. But as far as content, it is the standard. It's three volumes. It's solid. It attracts yeah. Luther. It is super solid. And the thing about The Bondage of the Will is it divided Lutherans when Luther published it. Hmm. And it caused this great controversy at Wittenberg amongst Luther's colleagues because some people were sympathetic to Erasmus of Rotterdam, who Luther was responding to. Erasmus had written under pressure from the papacy, Henry VIII, and other faculties, uh, monastic groups, humanist groups, that Erasmus was referred to as the prince of the humanists. And even though there are numerous humanist movements throughout Europe, Erasmus really became the what do you want to say, the totem, the representative, the face of humanism. And because of his popularity with Henry VIII, his best friend was Thomas More, Erasmus's best friend was Thomas More, who was Henry VIII's favorite person until he disagreed and Henry had him (laughs) executed, uh, beheaded actually, Um, over divorce, of course. Henry was more of a politician than a theologian, yeah? A little bit, just a little bit. Uh, there were several faculties in Europe that Erasmus held uh, honorary degrees, honorary chairs. He could come and go as he pleased. But he was also a very, we would call him very snarky. He mm. was snarky. He was satirical. He didn't have a lot of respect for the papacy. When he looked at the papacy and especially the Pope and his cardinals and what they did, he found that to be in contradiction <laughs> to what uh, he thought the Bible was teaching about the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. That yeah. the Pope and his cardinals, the Vatican in general, was very hedonistic, very earthly, uh, much more concerned with earthly politics, power, economics, rather than theology. And so Erasmus had written a number of different things that were critical of the papacy, yet he wrote them under uh, a pseudonym. He didn't really? write them what in his own that? name. but. Um, well, diatribe was one term he used, Hmm. but he would use different pseudonyms because it was satire and also because he didn't want to get excommunicated and burned at the stake. Yeah. Where, where did he, where did he live? All over. He didn't really have a home. He was from Belgium initially, originally, and yet he was a bastard. His father was a knight who refused to, to claim him. Right. And that affected him his whole life. We know that's for a fact. He wrote about it. Others who knew him well wrote about it, that being the bastard and not having a father that would claim him meant no inheritance, no property, no title, no name. And that's why I think you see biographically Erasmus being on the move constantly, very driven person. Yeah, because didn't he respond to didn't he respond to Luther uh, writing from England? Is that right? Yeah, I think so. He was in England at the time. Yeah, he, very sensitive person. Very sensitive. When he read Luther's response to on the freedom of the will, which he had written, when he read on the bondage of the will, he wrote an eight hundred plus page response to Luther. Mm-hmm. 
he thought, just some really quick and dirty background. When Erasmus wrote on the freedom of a Christian, he wrote that because he thought that was a safe topic to debate. It was, to him, to Erasmus, it was academic. It was inconsequential. No one cared about this whole question of the free will. And it was, he wrote it in Latin so that, you know, quote unquote, the, the, the ordinary common person could not read it because he didn't think it was safe for common Christians to read that mm. kind of doctrine. It would incite them to sin if they knew that they had a choice <laughs> about their salvation or that they participated in their salvation with the help of God's grace, that that might encourage them to behave. Because the, the humanist movement was a moral movement. Yeah. And this is an important thing to understand historically, and even in the present tense. There's only three kinds of movements historically, typically. There are charismatic movements. Uh, Luther, for example, would be an example of a charismatic movement. And I mean charismatic in the sense of a personality that drove a particular movement. Luther's personality drove the Saxon Reformation. And we see what happens as a consequence of Luther's personality when Luther dies. And he begins, or even before he dies, he begins to lose his kind of mental acuity. Yeah, He's not as sharp as he once was. He's really old and he's grouchy because he's got all of these physical ailments and his colleagues, especially his students, uh, were constantly attempting to either domesticate him, his theology, or improve upon it. This is something that, that people like Ulrich Zwingli, for example, was constantly complaining about, that Luther didn't go far enough in his reforms. He was still too attached to the Roman Catholic Church, and we need to go beyond or push past where Luther stopped because he wasn't finished yet. Uh, Karl Stott is another famous person. At one time, he was a colleague of Luther's and one of Luther's biggest supporters. And then when what was called the uh, oh, the iconoclastic controversy, what was it called? 1521, when Luther was at Coburg, he had to come back because they were smashing all the windows and stuff. Um, the heavenly prophets came in. Yeah, he came back. During, that was the Invocavit week. Yeah. Right? Yes, and he preached through those eight great sermons in Wittenberg that week. I just call it the iconoclastic. Yeah, that's what I because <laughs> that's what I call it too. Because they came in, they they broke out the windows in the churches, they broke yeah. statues, they tore the vestments. Wasn't it on Christmas Day that um, oh they came to church and took off his robes and and conducted mm-hmm. like basically what that's we might correct. call like a low mass, but even worse. I mean, there was just yes. no you know he was trying to get rid of pageantry, but it was really like there was there was no ceremony left i think it was like a prayer service or something and we did we cover this when we were i think we covered this in the last podcast when we were talking about the the things that are not necessary for salvation versus those things that are unnecessary yeah, yeah, yeah. when we were reading Haman, right it was henry Haman's book yeah that focusing on candles and altars investments and all the rest of it this is also in dr norman nagel's sermon for reformation day in that book of sermons by nagel that the the, Refor- the radical reformation, as it's called, or the counter-reformation, if you're Roman Catholic, is a push back against the Lutherans retaining what looked like, quote-unquote, Roman Catholic things. Oh, yeah. Which persists to this day, at least in the Midwest, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, my people will still occasionally say, that seems really Catholic, Pastor. Meaning, yep. that, seems more, that seems Roman Catholic. Rarely does anyone ever complain, that seems too Protestant. <laughs> or too Which, Lutheran, even. Right. Because what does that mean? <laughs> so then, it, it, it's only too Lutheran when it's not Catholic or Protestant enough. Then it becomes too Lutheran. Why do we have to have the Lord's Supper every Sunday, Pastor? That's so Lutheran. That's that's too Lutheran. So, in in 
Luther's response to Erasmus then, this prince of the humanists, who writes then under pressure from the papacy, from cardinals, from local bishops, from theological faculties he serves on, from Henry VIII, from Thomas More, from his own humanistic friends. <clears throat> oh yeah, so you have the charismatic movement, you have moral movements, and the moral movements are what they are. In fact, humanism in a nutshell is a moral movement. They were primarily concerned with public morality. Mm-hmm. Erasmus is primarily concerned not with faith, hope, and love, but rather how faith, hope, and love affect a change in the behavior of people in general in public. Right. That the primary, he called it Christian philosophy. And what he meant was that the humanists, they're humanists, as their name suggests, because they're interested in the human being. And can we improve? Can we can we become degenerate? How does that happen? What yeah. can Christianity do to curb our degeneracy? And what can it do to improve us as people? And so Luther, or I'm sorry, Luther, Erasmus developed what he called a Christian philosophy or a philosophy of Christianity, which was essentially moral. How do we fix people? Yeah, so you call it a practical Christianity, right? Yeah, practical Christianity. In his book on the freedom of the Christian, he, he essentially refers to Christian laity as no better than pigs. Oh. Yeah, which is why he, he kind of carries through the Roman Catholic teaching that nobody should be allowed to read the Bible apart from the church. Okay. And not in the sense of the church as the local congregation, which I would agree with myself, that apart from the church, the local congregation, which is the big C church, as so long as the gospel and the sacraments are there, the old Adam will take the, the text of scripture and make it all about himself. Versus when you read the scriptures in the church, in relation to the big C Catholic church, that's where the, the assembly of saints, that great cloud of witnesses is there. That's where the spirit is at work in such a way that you are... Sancti- you're, we call it sanctified speculation. You're sitting down around the word going, Lord, show us what you will. You know, mm-hmm. Lord, show us Christ. We would have you show us Jesus. But for Erasmus, the church is there to protect people from themselves because left to themselves, and this is a very platonic thing. This comes out of Plato. People left to themselves without laws, without guidance from people who are smarter than them, i.e. Erasmus, they descend in become wild animals. Right. This was Plato's point in his philosophical treatise that people left to themselves without a group of elders who can direct them, they just become wild beasts. That's kind of what happens when we leave the children home alone, right? Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> Whatever you do, do not go in that cupboard. 100% the six-year-old's going to be the monkey on top of everybody else's shoulders getting that getting in that cupboard. Yeah. But we talked about this then in previous episodes, in the buyer episode, last episode is buyer, that's right. Mm-hmm. So in the buyer episode... Oh, no, it was the buyer episode, not the Haman episode. We talked about this stuff. In the buyer episode, you either assume that your hearers are in bondage to sin and death and therefore need to be set free in Christ, or you assume that they're basically free people who need to be bound. Hmm. Erasmus 100% believes that people are basically free and things relating to God and each other and that they need to be curbed. They need to be controlled. They need to be fixed and helped to get to heaven. That's essentially the the the... the purpose of grace in Erasmus's understanding of the Roman Catholic system at that time was the purpose of grace is to assist you, to strengthen you, to move you along toward heaven, to avoid judgment, to receive your heavenly reward, which is due to you because of your merit, helped by grace, and yet nevertheless, you had some part in it. Yeah. So an example of Erasmus's thinking then is he uses a word study method to go through the Bible. So, on the topic of free will, what Erasmus does is he looks up 
every example he believes of free will in the Bible, he puts that down the left side of the paper. Then he looks up every example where we don't have free will, he puts that down on the right side of the paper. And then whichever list is longer, that's the truth. And since Erasmus finds more examples of free will than not free will, he says, he argues, there is free will. Now, what happens then when he gets to a text like God hardened Pharaoh's heart or Esau I've hated but Jacob I have loved is Erasmus does these wonderful Olympic level gymnastics with his exegesis to say, well, no, Pharaoh must have hardened his heart before God hardened Pharaoh's heart because why would God harden Pharaoh's heart if Pharaoh didn't do it first because then God wouldn't be just. Because for God to be just and righteous, he can't condemn someone to hell when they've done nothing wrong. So to say, I hate Esau, but I love Jacob without any provocation is to say that God is completely arbitrary and capricious. And there's no rhyme or reason to his methods. He's not just and he's not righteous. Thus, Erasmus is constantly doing these exegetical gymnastics to force the scripture to force the Bible into his ideology. Did I tell you about the uh, the class at seminary? I probably mentioned it before. Not on this show, though. Uh, what was that? It was Pentateuch 2, so it started with the Exodus. So we dealt with that hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would think it'd be the kind of thing that you just kind of talk about in passing, you know, maybe spend 10 minutes on it or something like that. No, we spent two class periods. <laughs> on, really? On the, yeah, because what it was team taught, and the two professors didn't agree with each other. <laughs> So one was huh. well, one was more Lutheran than the other. We'll just put it that way. And uh, so the first spent, you know, the entire class period trying to do exactly what Erasmus did, is to say, well, God, you know, God was vindicated in hardening his heart because Pharaoh had already hardened his, right? And uh, yes, the, the second class period was uh, uh, no, he's wrong, and here's what we actually confess about about the will and through um, the Book of Concord. So. It was a. It was kind of a. It was a fun time to see these professors going at each other, and uh, we just got <laughs> to sit, sit back and watch. And it was a lot, a lot like these. Uh, so when you said gymnastics, I mean, I remember that the philosophical gymnastics you have to do to get around that. And I think that's a good, uh, especially jumping off of what you just said, the example you just used. That's a good distinction between what an ideology is and what a theology is. Very simply, theology is it's words about God, theologos, words about God. Right. And ideology are words about ideas hmm. and ideals. And you can recognize an ideology when it does isogesis versus exegesis. Yeah. Meaning, rather than say, this is what the text says, we say, what does the text mean? Now, there is nothing wrong with asking, what does the text mean? Right. So long as you're saying, Lord, we would have you show us Jesus. It becomes an ideology when we say, Lord, we would have you show us ourselves. I want to be the hero of this narrative. And therefore, especially when it comes to matters of election, we hate when God just does stuff without any qualification or justification. For example, Jesus just decided to die for our sins. He didn't ask anybody. Well, why should he? He's God and you're not. Well, but I didn't ask him to die for me. It's like a conversation I'll have when I absolve people before confession just to mess with them because they're being overly pietistic. I absolve them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then afterwards they say, but pastor, we didn't confess our sins. Therefore, how can you forgive us? Yeah. Well, because the confession isn't the cause of the forgiveness. Forgiveness is the cause of the confession. You've got it backwards. And that's what I'm reminding you of. 
it's not that we shouldn't confess our sins. We should. But we confess our sins in, re- in reaction to, in relation to the Holy Spirit calling us by the gospel and enlightening us with his gifts. And that because he daily and abundantly forgives the sins of all believers, along with my sins, I am free to say, I did it again. <laughs> I sinned again. But I don't come to God and go, I sinned, so now give me the forgiveness juice. We get that backwards constantly. Yeah. Because we want God to say, well, that was good. That was really cool. A little Jack Horner sat in the corner, shoved in his thumb, pulled out a plum, and went, ah, look what a good boy I am. It's like, no, dude. It's, it has nothing to do with you and the pie. It has to do with Jesus. He's the whole pie. And that's when it becomes an ideology. That's when it becomes like a cult. Because the cult is, this is our idea, and this is how we're acting out that idea in the present tense. And anybody who introduces anything that conflicts or contradicts what we're already doing and what we already believe is a heretic. That's a cult. We use God as a cover for our ideas versus if if in the process of showing me Jesus, the Bible or the preacher that God sends to preach Christ to me says, you're not this person you're this person. All I can say to that is, amen, this is most certainly true. Right. That's the response of faith. The response of faith isn't, oh, well, I don't really like that God hardened Pharaoh's heart because I don't understand how he could do that and still be just and righteous. Versus what Luther says in response to Erasmus, which is, God doesn't care what you think. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the point. If God cared what you thought, there would have been a multiple choice questionnaire before the crucifixion. And there would be no crucifixion because we would have all chosen D, none of the above. Right. We would have chosen to save ourselves. And Luther understands, or at least he believes based on his reading of the Bible, that what Erasmus is saying, that if we give the laity too much of an education, if we allow them to read the Bible without the church present, meaning your priest, your bishop, it, they'll just sin. Luther is saying, actually, your theology is the cause of sin. Your, your theology isn't a theology. It's the old Adam's way of thinking. Hmm. It's moralistic. It's not Christological, which then brings me to the third kind of movement, the last movement, which is apocalyptic, that Luther very much is is a believer in the apocalypse coming in his lifetime or shortly after his death. And why not? There's plagues all the time. The the Turks, the Muslims have invaded Europe. Suleiman the Magnificent is at the gates of Vienna daily, weekly, people in Wittenberg are being told it's only a matter of time before they reach us, and that's the end of us. The Pope is after him. He's been excommunicated. Everyone who associates with Luther is excommunicated by proxy. His own students are burned at the stake when they go home for holidays for being heretics. He sees his own people during the Peasants' Revolt use his teachings as a justification for war and to murder each other. Of course he thinks this is the end times. He just has to look around. So Luther responds to Erasmus out of what he believes is a Christological reading of the Bible and and Erasmus's moralistic reading of the Bible. For Erasmus, grace points us back to ourselves and our own capabilities, our own abilities. For Luther, grace points us at Jesus and our incapability, our inability to do what God commands. Which is why to this day then, Lutherans hate the bondage of the will. Hmm. Not just Protestants or Roman Catholics, Lutherans hate this book. I just let that hang out there without qualification, just for fun. (laughs) Well, maybe we should look at the text. We should look at the text and explain then why through the text, even Lutherans can say, I don't like this. (laughs) 
Yeah, because that's another pretty big assertion you made. It is a huge assertion. But what Luther is asserting here at the heart of the bondage of the will attacks all people in every denomination equally. It does not discriminate. And that's Mm -hmm. why I say that. So this is from the Packer Johnston edition of the bondage of the will. I prefer this translation to the Roop translation or especially that really, really horrible Dillenberger translation, which is a dumpster fire. That's a dumpster fire of a translation. Just throw it it's away. Un- it's, it's unintelligible Ugh. at many points. Yeah. It's so it's so explicitly Anglican. <laughs> it's so explicitly reformed in its theology and the translation choices he makes. Oh, yeah, and that's another aside. Luther writes his response to Erasmus in Latin and German so that everybody can read it. Hmm. Because... Luther responds to Erasmus and says, this isn't an inconsequential doctrine. This is the hinge on which all Christian theology turns. Right. This whole matter of free will, because it points to election. Right. And therefore, what Erasmus thinks is a polite debate between two academics, two theologians, Luther says, no, this, this debate that you've chosen, this topic, is the foundation of the Christian religion. And that if we get this wrong, this whole matter of free will, Christianity itself is destroyed if we get this wrong. Yeah. So that's no small thing. So this is Packer and Johnston edition, page 307, where Luther writes, Moreover, since Christ is said to be the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6, and he says that categorically, we'll come back to that in a minute, so that whatever is not Christ is not the way, but error, not truth, but untruth, not life, but death, it follows of necessity that free will, in quotation marks, inasmuch as it neither is Christ nor is in Christ, is fast bound in error, and untruth, and death. So where and whence then comes your, and he's, now he's responding to Erasmus, where and whence then comes your intermediate, your neutral entity, and I mean the power of free will, which even though it is not Christ, which is the way, the truth, and the life, is also not error, untruth, or death. <laughs> That's his open. He's, he's trying to tell Erasmus, the will is not um, inanimate, or it's not just a tool, Right, you know that you either use for good or that has no consequence if you use, you know, how you use it or what it is even. Well, and think about that in relation to the analogy of the stick shift in a car. We've nerfed mm-hmm. the world, so most people don't even know what a stick shift is anymore, no. which is tragic in its own right. But no one will enjoy the, the the pleasure of popping a clutch in the winter when your car doesn't start. <laughs> Getting three or four friends to push you down a, a very steep incline so you can pop the clutch. Um, that for all of us. We're just born with this mindset. This is the old Adam's mindset. The sinful mindset is, well, we have choices to do good or bad, right or wrong, because we're like God. We know good and evil. Mm -hmm. So we must be born with the ability to choose between good and bad, right and wrong, even in relation to God. Therefore, our wanting, our willing, is like the stick shift. We start off in first, but by the time we get going, we want to be up into fifth gear. And then when we come to a bump in the road, when we come to a stoplight, when we come to a yield sign or we hit heavy traffic, we downshift. And that that's our life right. in a nutshell. Right. Or to sum up the bondage of the will, as simply as I can, our heart always wants something, always. And our mind is always justifying what our heart wants. Hmm. And since our, our heart can never stop wanting something, our mind can never stop justifying what we want to ourselves and others. So you have, you have that contrast right in the text, right? That it, that the free will yes. is fast bound in error. <laughs> in other words, yes. it's not free. No, it's not free at all. And it can't be free because it, 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 it's this whole term categorically that he says in this first sentence. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that categorically, 
I, I te- when I teach the Psalms, I bring this up a lot because this is really Luther working out of now over 10 years of lecturing on the Psalms, lecturing on the Old Testament, lecturing on the New Testament, but primarily in the Psalms, the theology of the Psalms, it's all what we would call categorical or dialectic mm. or what Luther would say distinctions. So that if, if the psalmist says that the Lord is our strength, he's also saying we have no strength in ourselves. Yeah. If the Lord produces fruit, then we are incapable of producing fruit. Luther sees this in the Bible, that there's no such thing as a middle way. There's no neutral ground in the Bible. There's God and there's us, the old Adam. And that whatever God is not, that's usually what we are. And whatever we are not, that's what God is. And that where this finds its overlap is in the God-man, Jesus Christ. But that the purpose of, of the word becoming flesh is to show us that we are not God's. And yeah. we are incapable and unable to do the things of God. This is why it's so dangerous for Luther that late medieval Catholicism and modern Protestantism holds Jesus up as an example to be imitated. What we really mean is don't be God. Don't walk on water and turn water into wine and raise the dead. Just follow his example of proper Christian behavior. Yeah. But that doesn't save you, does it? It doesn't. It, it leads to death, apparently, because we all go to the graveyard and... Therefore, the pursuit of a Christ-like life, which always and it, it always means one thing, just act like Jesus. Hmm. Well, going back to your analogy of the kids, it's like saying to your kids, don't do this. That's all they're thinking about doing now because you brought it up. Yeah. So if you say, be more like Christ, be more kind, be more loving, be more forgiving, you are constantly under pressure to not uh, act according to your own nature. Yeah. And then how do you escape from that pressure? You isolate other people who are less Christ-like than you are and then say, well, look at them. Yeah, or you just, you just fall completely into it. You fall completely into it. Right, you just embrace what, you, what you're not supposed to be. The, the assumption that we have this neutral gear and we can shift up and down, we can speed up or slow down our progress in the Christian faith, and like we said, that is essentially human nature. We're all born thinking this way that we have choice and that we seek out others who affirm us in our choices and our heart always wants what it wants and therefore our mind is constantly justifying what we want. This is the root of social media. Mm-hmm. Like that's what social media exists for. That's why it's so popular because it's, I need to feel good about myself because I don't. Yeah. Or I need to know if I'm right because I'm not quite sure what I'm thinking is correct. So I need to find other like-minded people to tell me I'm right. Hmm. Which, again, in and of itself is very cultic. It's very ideologically driven because it doesn't want the truth. It simply wants the affirmation that I'm, I'm true. So you, the things that you post, you're going to check an hour later to make sure uh, that they got a sufficient number of likes. And they might even exactly. – I, I never do this, but, but apparently people do this. They go look and see who liked their posts. <laughs> Which is even more important yeah. because you want to make sure that all of the right people like your posts. Or I, I was listening to one comedian say, it's not who retweets my tweets on Twitter – or I'm sorry, it's not that it's retweeted, it's who retweets my tweets. And so long as it's the politicians that I voted for, so long as it's the celebrities that espouse my political ideology and my social ideology, that's a feather in my cap. That means they know who I am. And because that celebrity or politician knows who I am, and that's the currency that we trade, we exchange in, that gives me value. And that's the old Adam in a nutshell. It's a life that's lived... Um, apart from faith in the Son of God, right? Hundred <laughs> percent. Your life, your life is the source of your life is found in affirmation, agreement, um, right? You know, ego boosting, whatever. 
Yeah. Well, think about what do we, how do we refer to people who don't take up either position, either ditch, but stand in the middle of the road? What do we, how do we talk about them? How do we describe people who are in the middle of the road? Wishy-washy, fence sitters, spineless, make up a decision one way or the other versus no, I just recognize that either ditch is the extreme. They're both ideologically driven and I want to, I want to have a conversation that has nuance in it. I want to think through both sides and make up my own mind. I want to be a free thinker. Again, the assumption is I am free to be objective and to think for myself. But as we see in the present tense with media, with politics, with society, everything is one or the other. There can be no middle ground. Yeah. So going back then to what he says, that's where the Christian essentially is supposed to stand is in this categorical way of thinking, this distinction, making distinctions. There's Christ and who Christ is and what Christ is and everything else, which is not Christ. So therefore, if Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, then whatever is not Christ is not the way. Instead, it's an error. It's, it's, not, it's a lie. It's a mistake. It's an accident, however you want to refer to it. It's not the way. It's an error. It's not the truth, but untruth, and it's not life, but death. So therefore, free will, which is not Christ or in Christ, is error, untruth, and death. That's why Luther says to Erasmus, the doctrine you chose to debate is actually the foundation of the Christian religion. Because if we accept free will, in even, even if you have a hangnail worth of free will in regards mm-hmm. to God, you have undone the entire Christian faith. Yeah. Because free will is neither Christ nor in Christ. Because in Christ, why would you want freedom to choose? What is there left to choose? It's interesting. This is actually the argument um, for the solas, right, of the Reformation? Yes, which is why I say this is Luther at his most Lutheran, because this is his way of saying sola, 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 sola. Right, because the um, Roman Catholic accusation is, well, the text doesn't say alone, (laughs) right? Correct. Of course, I heard a witty response to that by a, a former Roman Catholic. He's like, "Well, the text also doesn't uh, say what does it actually say? It does say Hail Mary. Virgo or no, 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 no. What's the end of the immaculately conceived? What's the end of the Hail Mary? How's it go? Uh, You're the producer. Google it. <laughs> That's why this is called as Lutheran as it gets. Oh well, I used to watch Mother Angelica <laughs> on EWTN just for the. Oh uh, yes, uh, she was, was phenomenal. So <laughs> Hail Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Yeah, where does the scripture say that? (laughs) Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. That is a terrifying statement. Pray for us at the hour of our death. That means when I die, I have no comfort or security in the knowledge that I am in the resurrection, I am the elect. But rather, I just got to hope that Jesus' mother can convince him that I'm I'm worth taking a chance on. Wow. You know, that's that's exactly the same same prayer as the... Uh, the Muslim jihadist, by the way, just not to marry, yes. just to Allah. Right. Well, this we've talked about this numerous times. All religions are essentially the same because the old Adam can only imagine one kind of religion, which is self-deification. Right. To become God in God's place. All religions are transactional. All religions just use the language of the culture around them to espouse one kind of theology, which is, here's a transaction between me and God or the gods. The gods do something for me, I do something for them. They assist me, and then I show my thankfulness and my gratitude by doing what they expect me to do. And there is no middle ground. It's always about getting to the Elysian fields, right? Exactly, exactly. Watch um, Gladiator. That's right? what I was the thinking of. Gladiator. Of Russell Crowe. Yep. 
Yeah. Boom. Well, that, and that was the Roman. <laughs> uh, that was certainly the Roman concept of uh, of religion. So there's a right. there's a 14 part podcast series from BBC Four. Uh, it came out Ooh, a couple yes. weeks ago. They dropped the whole thing in a row, or they're dropping it really quick. It's like every day. Yeah. Well, you, that's a great point you bring up, though. How many religions espouse if you die in battle, you go straight to heaven? Yeah. Because as I've well, said numerous times about um, Norse mythology, you die in battle, you go to Valhalla. In the Spartan ideology, you either come home with your shield or on your shield, yeah. because otherwise you don't get to go to heaven. Yeah, and that's as what you point out, Islam, right? The, that's, that's the only it's way what you it know is for, for Islam. Sure is if you die a martyr's death. That's what the kamikazes believed in World War II. That's what we espouse in our country to this day, that soldiers who die in battle make the ultimate sacrifice. And therefore, they are 100% in heaven. That Guaranteed. What the underlying theology behind that belief system is, if I sacrifice myself in service to my countrymen, my neighbor, and by the way, big picture, I'm fighting for the sake of the gods, against these false gods and their false worshipers, my reward for giving my life up is heaven, which is, again, the most anti-Christ confession you can make, which is Christ's death doesn't matter. My death in service to God matters most. Yeah, That's every religion, even Christian religion, when it becomes, like you said, the Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. It's not in scripture. So where does that come from? Well, that's just old Adam religion 101. And yeah, instead right. of using the name of Allah or or that historical cultural context, we use the historical cultural context of the Bible. We'll pick Mary and say, well, she was immaculately conceived because that's why she was chosen to give birth to the Savior. And oh, by the way, she prays for us every day. She's the co-redemptrix, as Vatican I named her, because Jesus is too specific. He's too categorical. He's constantly making these distinctions. The Bible is making these distinctions. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, anything that's not Jesus or in Christ is not truth, but untruth, yeah. not life, but death. And therefore, free will, since it ain't Christ and it's not in Christ, is error, untruth, and death. So then where, Erasmus, is this neutral entity, this neutral place <laughs> where we can exercise free will? This doesn't even work in relation to the second table of the commandments. Not fully. Because anybody who's had the flu, anybody who's been throwing up all day, anybody who's had violent diarrhea knows you can choose not to be nauseous. You can choose not to be sick, but you're going to be sick. Right. That's the way it works. If you're going to have an aneurysm, you don't have any choice about that. You can eat healthy. You can sleep well. You can exercise. You can do everything right. And then when you're 47, you drop dead of a massive heart attack because you didn't know that you had an irregular heartbeat. That sounds kind of fatalistic. You could call it fatalistic. I call it pragmatic. Hmm. It's just reality. It's also, it also goes to the stoic philosophy of tomorrow you will die, therefore don't put off today till tomorrow, which is very much the theology of James. Don't move to a foreign country and say, hey, I'm going to stay here for a year and make my fortune. You have no control over that. Yeah, you're or not Jesus the Lord. Too. So, Don't worry about tomorrow. You've yeah. got enough problems today. Right. <laughs> exactly. I give you today. That's it, buddy. There is no yesterday. There is no tomorrow. They don't exist. They're not real. They're just inventions. Yet, the categorical way of thinking is, well, there's Erasmus's position. We have some choice in relation to our neighbor, and we have some choice in relation to God. And then there's Luther's position, which is, no, that's not Christ. And anything that takes away from Christ Jesus for me, pro nobis, pro me, is therefore death and untruth and a lie. 
So if Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, then free will is the error, the untruth, and the death of all of us. If all things that are said of Christ and of grace were not said categorically, so that they may be contrasted with their opposites like this, out of Christ there is nothing but Satan, out of grace there is nothing but wrath, out of light there is nothing but darkness, out of the way there is nothing but error, out of the truth nothing but a lie, out of life nothing but death, were these things not so, were these things not true, what, I ask you, would be the use of all the apostolic discourses, and indeed of the entire scriptures? <laughs> they would all be written in vain, they'd all be useless, because they would not compel the admission that men need Christ, which is their main, their primary burden. And that's for the following reason. We'll get to that in a second. It's, uh, I heard a Reformation sermon last night, which made a similar point, that apart from the, the preaching of the word and the reception of Christ's body and blood, we don't actually know who we are. <laughs> Correct. We, that we, we need um, God to reveal to us who, uh, who we are. He used the example of Dorian Gray, you know, who, had this, yes. who was this beautiful man, but, but inwardly, uh, he was an evil, he was a wicked man, and growing wicked, more wicked by the time. And the painting that was made of him um, was revealing who he truly was. It was like, it was the true mirror instead of um, the mirror that other people saw. So we can do a really good job like presenting ourselves as being right. uh, moral, virtuous, righteous, just, whatever word you want to use. <laughs> but we're actually apart from Christ. You're living apart from Christ. So it's, it's all a lie. One thing that I tell young people, especially guys that I train with who are 17, 18, 19 years old, is you never actually feel yourself growing older. I'm 46. I don't feel 46. I feel, I don't know what I feel anymore. I've gotten to the point in life where I no longer say, oh, I feel like I'm 27 or, oh, man, I feel like an old man now. I just don't feel 46. And then when people I train with who are younger than me tell me I don't look 46, that I look younger than people who are in their late 30s, it it puffs me up. It, it makes me feel good about myself. But again, it's that whole old Adam way of having to count and transaction and the language of, you know, what currency are we trafficking in? Because... 46 to a 19-year-old, I'm old. To a 19-year-old, I am old. Because I said, well, what's old to you? And they're like, you know, 35, 37. Yeah, twice as old as they are, right? (laughs) Right. They're looking at me saying, well, you don't look like an old man. That is 37. So therefore, you must be around 33 because you don't look young either. Versus when I talk with a 59-year-old man or woman, they'll say, oh, you're so young. Hmm. Because in relation to me, they see their gray hairs, they see the sagging skin, they see all of that happening. They see their face sliding off their skull and say, you look so young. It's all reference. It's all relative in the sense of, well, what my heart wants is to be older and to be taken seriously. What my heart wants is to be younger and not feel age. Nobody's content to be yeah. who they are. Right. We have that expression, right? They, that he was, he, he was wise beyond his years or something like that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you even see this to this day then that people in their like, – I just um, – the other night, uh, a guy who's 73 got his blue belt in jiu-jitsu, mm-hmm. 73 years old. Go back 50 years and go find 20 73-year-olds if you can <laughs> and, and then say, okay, we're going to put you in combat sports, but don't worry. Within five years, you're going to get your blue belt and you're going to be moving and shaking and rolling around on the mat with all these 20-year-olds like it's nothing. There's not a 73-year-old. like That would be the exception, not the rule. Whereas today, the people that I, you, I go to, you know, I look at uh, friends of mine who are mixed martial arts fighters and they, go, they train CrossFit. There are people at CrossFit in their 80s, especially right. the women who go to yoga. They don't look 80. 
They don't look 80 compared to other 80-year-olds. They don't look... And all they've done is eat right, sleep well, lower stress, and exercise. Do yoga and stuff like that. Right. So the, the point is, is that the, the standard of age is actually... Um, determined by uh, like some, a common lifestyle, right? So a standard yes. diet and standard behavior and activity. And as right. soon as you change that and you break out of that, then then people relatively don't even know who you are. <laughs> exactly. Because you don't fit into their narrative of what they want. Right. And therefore the mind is confused be. because it's like, yeah. right. It's like, how do I justify this person to myself when this doesn't make sense and bring it around full circle? We construct... A reality for ourselves in our own mind. We imagine the rea- the world as we would have it be. That's ideology. And then when reality slaps us across the face and says, that's not real, this is real. You are your age. You are this person. We run away from that. Very rarely do we embrace it unless we're forced. You break your leg, yeah. you get cancer, something in your life causes you stress that snaps you out of your your quote-unquote reveries. But in the same way then, or a very similar way, sorry, in a similar way, like you said, unless the Holy Spirit through the gospel reveals to us who we truly are, and this is Dr. Luther's point, even sin has to be revealed to us. We have to be revealed as being sinful. Because you and I don't think of ourselves as, we've talked about this in previous podcasts, there's not a lot of religions that espouse God hates you and you're going to burn in hell when you die. (laughs) That's a really that's a really difficult religion to get off the ground. <laughs> right. It's not it's probably not the first thing out of your mouth. It's not your lead. No, <laughs> it's God is good. God loves me the way I am, and no matter what I do in this life, I'm going to heaven when I die. Especially if I die in battle. So it's not just grace, it's not just Christ that's revealed, but through the revelation of who Christ is for us, the revelation of who we are, this dialectic, this categorical way of thinking. If Christ is life, and then life is a person then I cannot have life in me apart from this person. Or to say, Jesus is the truth. Well, then that must mean that everything that comes out of my mouth in relation to God is a lie. Because categorically. Unless it's spoken, Otherwise, what's the purpose spoken, of Christ, Luther asks. Yes, exactly. Spoken as the word of Christ. Or is the word of exactly. Christ, I should say. Yep. So it's not just a rejection of Christ that drives us, but ultimately it's a rejection of who we are in relation to Christ that drives us. This is why people, like in my circumstances, why men abandon their families in their early to mid-40s. They don't like being daily reminded, this is who you are. Right. <laughs> You're not the person you imagine yourself to be young and vibrant and potent and exciting and, uh, and adventurous. No, you're a, you're, a, you're a man in his 40s who's married with five kids and two dogs and you have responsibilities and this is the way it is. Every day until you die. Yeah. A boring day job. It's just part of it. <laughs> right. And if that's not received in the way of Christ, therefore it's not a gift. And therefore everything is a burden. Everything is a thorn. Everything is a curse because everything is saying, this is reality. And what's going on in your mind right now, what your heart wants isn't real. And yet all wars, all social disruption, slavery, oppression, abuse, you name it, alcoholism and addiction, are all the way that we reject reality in order to construct ourselves into a person we're not. Yeah. This is also, incidentally, why the Christians who hold most tenaciously um, to the church, especially to the Church of the Reformation, to the Lutheran Church, are those who actually know uh, who they are. You know, they know the depravity of of, of their nature. Those who haven't hit bottom, we might say, who, who or at least who don't believe yeah. that, um, they're the yeah, ones who leave the church. 
because right. they have no need for Christ. Because <laughs> Christ reveals right. that, of course, to them, uh, and he also is exclusively the remedy or, you know, the answer, the truth, the way. And those who have suffered, whether it's self-imposed suffering or whether it's coming from outside of them, those who are afflicted most, those who are who feel their sin the most, as Dr. Luther would say, are those who don't – it's not, well, I get the gospel and you don't because you haven't suffered like I've suffered, but rather right. – Having been having you having yourself revealed to yourself in fact, also then raises up the reality of how much more you need Christ than you ever imagined. Yeah, that specificity. I need Christ because of this categorical way that God works out our salvation. Means I don't have any room for your imagined free will. Your hey, you got to do this now. You got to behave yourself. You got to fix your life. You got to help yourself. You got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps or have somebody else help you do that. Nuh-uh. <clears throat> the more I hang around with Christ, the more sinful I see myself as. Right. It's like shining a it's like shining a light on uh, a stain on your clothes. That the brighter the light, the 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 bigger the stain, the more noticeable it is. So for Luther, in response to Erasmus's argument that we have some free will that, uh, that cooperates with grace in our salvation, he says, there is no neutral ground for what you call the free will. There's not Jesus on the one ditch, Satan in the other ditch, and then we stand on the road and we have to decide which ditch we're going to jump into. Rather, there is yeah, no red road. Pill or blue pill, right? Right, red pill, blue pill. Rather, Christ is the road. He is the way. So you're either on the road with Christ or you're in the ditch. Both ditches are Satan. Whereas we, by nature, want to treat it as, no, I'm in the road. The road is the neutral space. I can go backwards, forwards, side to side. And the two ditches are Jesus and the devil. Whereas Luther's saying, no, you're either in Christ, you're on the road, or you're not in Christ, you're off the road. And if you're in the ditch or you're out in left field or you're just wandering through the mountains, that's the kingdom of Satan. So therefore, as you just pointed out, those who leave the church because they're uncomfortable with this categorical way of speaking about Jesus and us, they leave because they would prefer to live in the strong man's house than the Lord's house. As I say to my people, when you drive by the church on Sunday morning on your way to Perkins, the devil just waves and says, I'll see you back at home. Yeah, right. He doesn't have to tempt you to sin and death. You're already captive to sin and death. That's why you choose pancakes <laughs> over the gospel. Right. Not that you can't go have pancakes before or after the gospel. I'm just saying, if you choose it in place of. You're calling Perkins pancakes like one of those demons that are seven times, you know, the seven demons that are worse than the first. Oh, 100%. 100%. All that stuff. Demonic. Demonic captivity. Perkins is the gateway. That's the gateway drug to Taco Bell and Arby's and all that stuff. Oh, no. By the way, this podcast is brought to you by Quest Peanut Butter Protein Powder. I'm drinking creatine wow. powder, collagen powder, protein powder, and cold-pressed coffee mixed with heavy cream. Because, again, I'm spiritually morally superior to all of you. <laughs> or maybe physically, anyway. That's right. Just give me my toe. Just give me a little toe in the water. That's all I need. Just a shred of decency. Just a shred of integrity. And so we need to chop that toe off when we stick it in the water, according to Luther. Chop it off, because it's not Christ. Yeah. This would all... Everything in Scripture would be written in vain. It would all be useless... If free will existed, because it would compel us men to say, well, we don't really need Jesus that much. Well, at least not as much as the Bible seems to tell us we need Jesus. Hmm. 
Because there would be this intermediate, this neutral, this demilitarized zone where nothing happens and we can choose to jump in the German trench or jump in the uh, the French trench. Christ nor Satan, true or false, alive or dead, something or nothing, and its name would be called the most excellent and exalted thing in the whole of the human race. If free will, ex- if free will did truly exist, we would call it the most excellent and exalted thing. In the- it would be the most praiseworthy thing, which is such an interesting point because when I emailed you about us doing this this text for Reformation Week, I said, you know, the bondage of the will sums up the whole thrust of Luther's teachings and why he walked away from the papacy. He right. followed the gospel, not the Pope. He says it's his best work, and yet it caused divisions amongst his own colleagues, and it causes divisions amongst Lutherans to this day because what it does is, at its heart, and this is really the heart of that argument, this way of thinking categorically about Christ and us is it upends and, and burns to the ground this whole transactional way of thinking. So what it does is it destroys the late medieval penitential system, which is transactional. And right. because of that, it also upends modern Protestantism because modern Protestantism is transactional. What are you going to do to show God your thanksgiving and your gratitude? The thing about the bondage of the will, as my professor liked to say, is that Luther won the debate, but Erasmus won the war. Because Erasmus and his argument that our will participates with grace in our salvation, or our will participates with the Holy Spirit in our salvation, Erasmus is the proto-evangelical, the proto-modern evangelical Protestant. He really is. When I tell people to read The Bondage of the Will, I always tell them, read Erasmus first because you'll agree with him. Yeah, that's right. Even, Even though you know you're not supposed to. It's like Heisenberg. I know I'm not supposed to like Walter White. But I sympathize with him. No matter how evil he becomes, I still sympathize with him because he's so likable he, as a character. He, yeah, because he pulls it off. He pulls you it know? off and he's doing it for his family. He's doing it for his family. He doesn't right, want to so be a, the meth king of the Southwest United States. He has a noble cause and he's really yes. good at it. Yes. You know, and, and he's the little guy who becomes the big guy, you know. Right. And he makes it's it. It's the Horatio well, Alger mostly. story. Exactly. A yeah. true Horatio Alger story. And that's what we all want to be, too. We want to be a Horatio Alger story. We want to go west and reinvent ourselves over and over again until we finally hit on the perfect human being that we've always wanted to be, which doesn't exist. But that's why we think this way. This is why late medieval scholasticism, Roman Catholicism, this is why modern Protestantism thinks this way, because that's the way the old Adam thinks. Yeah. We think in terms of, I want this, now how do I get it? I've been under a little vocational distress as of late, and uh, one of the things I recognized is, you know, I like to define who I am based off of um, the vocations I have, right? Right. You know, so right. I'm, I'm a pastor, I'm a coffee roaster, I'm a media producer, uh, webmaster, whatever it is, you know, it doesn't matter. And then, yes. so, so then the, the question is, well, what, what if you were given a vocation um, that you didn't really want to be defined by? You know, like a bank teller yes, or something. Like being a pastor. Well, well maybe, <laughs> but yeah, you're the you're the bank teller, or you're the trash man, or you know, I mean, some of the mm-hmm. less, you know, uh, what do you want to say? Just not they're a, not respected, not as respected, and certainly wouldn't wouldn't boost your ego the way you'd like, right? And right. so, can you do, can you engage in those things? Can you not be defined by them, but sim- simply just do them? Um, and there's only one way, right? Is if you're defined by who you are in Christ. If yes. that's your only definition. Well, to your point, I was just listening to an interview about this yesterday. An example of this is how come everybody's supposed to go to college 
And mm, we right. very rarely ever bring up taking up a trade and going to a technical school. Yeah. That being an electrician, being a plumber, not only is a noble profession, it's necessary. We always need plumbers. We always need electricians. But that what's wrong with knowing that you're going to make a lot of money working with your hands at this very technical skill that is necessary. And yet, if your son says, when I grow up, I want to be an electrician, we're like, eh, I, I guess yeah. if you, you know, if you don't go to college, you're not smart. Hmm. It's like, do you know how smart you have to be to be an electrician? <laughs> I have the worst problem. Try and rewire your house and then get back to me. <laughs> I, I have a, you know, a child who says, well, I, I want to be a musician. <laughs> right. I probably right. could be. The more esoteric trait. Right, right. But it's like, oh, no, you don't, you don't need a college degree for that. And, um, right. But it also doesn't pay very well. So yes. it's, it's not <laughs> – it's, I guess if you're a bohemian or something, it would, it would you know, be kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But uh, otherwise – uh, as a parent, you're just like, oh, that's going to work out real well. Yes. Well, and our entire our entire high school curriculum, elementary curriculum, and therefore college curriculum is based on the factory model that came out of Chicago in the early 20th century. The way that the desks are organized in classrooms, the mm. curriculum itself, the way that we use standardized tests to separate out people and figure out who's going to be the accountant, who's going to be an engineer, who's going to be middle right. management, who's going to pull levers on the floor. Everything about our public education system is designed for one purpose. How are you going to contribute to our economy mm-hmm. and our economic yeah, well-being true. as a people? That's true. That's what trades are for. That's what trade unions are for, is to protect those people from exploitation. And we saw that become corrupt in the 40s through the 60s, I understand. But nonetheless, in the present tense, what we want versus what we need are in conflict with each other. And that's, I think, a touch point is how come... I don't want my kid to grow up to be a plumber. Plumbers make a lot of money. I know a plumber. Mm, it's true. He is well off because guess what? He's always got work. Yeah. And as he said to me, my favorite customers are the ones who call and say, I watched a YouTube video <laughs> oh. <laughs> because he knows what comes next. You're he knows what's job coming. That was going to be one hour. And now it is. Three. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you for paying for my summer vacation. <laughs> That's right. Now I get to undo all the things that you did. Yes. And then fix it. Or in high school I, or in college, I knew an electrician who could rewire houses without turning the electricity off. He was oh, yeah. amazing. Just the thought of doing that. I, I didn't even, I'm like, no, I don't even want to be around you when you're doing this. Mm, no. <laughs> and yet he was in his 60s. He had been doing it since he was a teenager. Right. He was apprenticed into being an electrician. He only went to, to trade school to get his, elect, you know, his electrician's uh degree diploma or whatever because they updated their you know the requirements for the job it was a formality for him he was a master electrician by the time he got out of high school essentially and it was amazing to watch him work because he was a master at his craft and the reason i bring that up too to bring it back around to jesus is we always think there's more we have to do to become a master at that thing I'll devote the next 12 years of my life to earning a black belt in jujitsu. And anybody who suggests otherwise, I just look at them like they're insane. Like, why wouldn't I do that? This is my pursuit. And to be able to say at 55, I'm a black belt in jujitsu, to me is almost sweeter than if you get your black belt when you're 25, because you can say, I'm 55 and I have a black belt in jujitsu. I know a guy who teaches out in Montana. I trained with this summer. Yeah, and I just got it last year. Right. That I trained (laughs) with this black belt. He was 64 when he got his black belt. And he is an amazing human being. But when he said, I was 64 when I got my black belt because I didn't start jujitsu until I was in my early 50s, I, I, as a 40-year-old, you know, a person in his 40s who's just starting, I said, thank you. Yeah. You are my inspiration. You are the wind beneath my wings. Yeah. 
that's what we do is we're constantly in pursuit of this ideal name it to be the i you know the ultimate the master electrician a master jujitsu a master computer programmer a master preacher even mastering christianity but like Immanuel Kant recognized, if we can master this Christianity thing, the, the better we get at it, the less we need Jesus. Yeah. So the goal is to get to the point where you can expend the least amount of effort possible on faith, right? Exactly. I'm but, so faithful, I don't have to pray now. Yeah. <laughs> Not regularly. Yeah. I don't have right. to read the Bible. I'm a Christian. I don't have to go to Bible study Sunday morning or any other time. I don't have to go to church every Sunday. Why? I'm baptized. I know I'm saved. I don't need this all the time. And then you get those who will come to church when things are going well and disappear when things go bad, or people mm-hmm. who only show up when there's a crisis and then disappear when things get better. Mm-hmm. They, they're, again, Dr. Luther's example, they're like a drunk trying to get on a horse. As soon as they get their foot in the stirrup, they throw themselves over the other side into the ditch. And they get back up, and they get their foot in the stirrup, and they throw themselves over the other side back into the other ditch. And that's who we are yeah, as sinners. That's a Charlie right? Chaplin movie. Yes. That we are as old Adams, as sinners, like a drunk man trying to get on a horse. We never get on the horse. We're always falling off either side of the horse. And yet for us, we call that progress. Yeah. <laughs> I got close to that time. Yeah. It's Charlie Brown trying to kick the football. This time is going to be the time. Yeah, right. Versus Luther's point here in the Bonner's Will, Johnston Packer, page 307, if it ain't Christ, it ain't worth worrying about. Because if it isn't Christ, it's sin. If it isn't Christ, it's death. If it isn't Christ, it's error and lies. It's not what we call free will then for Dr. Luther, in relation to God anyways, what we call free will is really original sin. Yeah, which is also um, the Antichrist, right? Right. Well, I, I recently started off a lecture on the bondage will by asking, what does God's wrath feel like? Mm. It feels like free will. Because according to Paul in Romans 1, God gives us over to the desires of our heart. Yeah, which you get exactly me, what you want. More terrifying. <laughs> exactly. What, terrifying, right? That yeah. God gives you what you want so that you act, the thing that is damning you, you think is a blessing. Like, oh, I'm so grateful I got this job. I'm so grateful I got this car. I'm so grateful I got this spouse. I'm so grateful I have these kids. I'm so grateful. Well, yeah, but if though, like you said, if those are signs of God's favor, what happens if they're taken away from you, when they're taken away from you? What happens when your health and well-being are taken away from you? What happens when you all of a sudden are told you have early onset dementia? What are you told when your job is eliminated because the company is moving or downsizing? What happens when your spouse walks out on you and you're 52 years old? What now? Is that God's fault? Is yeah. that the way the old Adam works? Is is God's favor and God's attitude towards you all hinge on what you can taste, touch, see, and feel around you? Right, because the opposite is, all, it, it was my fault is what I did. Um, yes. It's completely on me, you know, personally. Right. Uh, it, God, is, God is paying me uh, <laughs> paying me back for what I did, you know, almost just versus revenge. Luther's point, which is if you understand that Everything that's not Christ is sin and death, i.e. you're not Jesus, therefore sin and death is a part of who you, that is who you are. Then when those things happen, as much as they hurt, as much as they, they, can, they threaten to annihilate you, you can go, no, that's just how sinful people behave towards each other. Yeah. This isn't an exclusive thing. This is sadly common to all sinners. 
And therefore, I run to the body and blood of Christ. I run to my preacher for the gospel because that's the only thing that can comfort me right now is that this is not the final word. I'm not a failure because my spouse left me. I'm not a failure because I got an F on a, on a, in, in, you know, name your subject. I'm not a failure because I lost my job. I'm not a failure because I haven't been to church in six months. But rather, the only way we fail is when we re- don't recognize our need for Christ. But even that's taken out of our hands, according to the third article of the Creed, in Luther's right. explanation in the large catechism, that the, if the gospel is being preached to you, you are the elect. You don't have to ask, how do I know if I'm elect? The gospel being preached to you is God sending a preacher to announce to you, I choose you in Christ. Yeah. The body and blood. Baptism is God's way of saying, I choose you in Christ. It's not dependent upon your will. Uh, because your will, your will would only choose... Um, you know, right, evil. sin and death and hell. Yeah, death right. and hell, Satan. Yeah. What you chose for evil, God used for good. <laughs> you chose to go to church to try to earn God's favor, and he decided to preach the gospel to you instead. Exactly, exactly. I'm going to live. Well, actually, I'm going to kill you, but don't worry, I'll raise you from the dead. Yeah, exactly. Is there an option C? <laughs> Maybe there's like a third plank we could cling to for this, you know? Mm. So, yeah, check this. This is a wonderful, the Bondage of the Will is a wonderful text. It's very dense. It's very difficult to read. It's a late medieval style of argumentation. And so I always tell people, read it backwards. Start at the end of the Bondage of the Will. Read Luther's conclusion. And that way you know where he's going. And then read backwards through it, section by section, to understand his argument. Because he talks about scripture. Then he talks about God. Then he talks about our willing. And then he talks about Christ. So read his conclusion, which is about Christ. Then read about our willing. And you'll understand what this this big paragraph we just read this hour has to do with our willing, then read God, and then read about Scripture. Read it backwards. So then when you go to read the Bible, wherever it may be, with your pastor and Bible study, with your family, you can start from, Lord, we would have you show us Jesus, versus show me what I need to know to be a good Christian. Yeah, give me something to work because on what you need to yeah, Please. What you need to be a good Christian is Christ, <laughs> right. period. Because there's only one who is good, and that's God. And that's what makes so categorically, this, what, the most Lutheran of the of Luther Luther's writings? works. Outside yeah. of the catechism. Yeah, this is, the most, this is Luther at his most Lutheran, outside of the catechism. And that's why it's so difficult for even us Lutherans at the present tense, because Luther is saying, if you're not in Christ, <coughs> excuse me, then you're not in the way of truth. And you're not in the way of life, and you're not in the way of righteousness, grace, forgiveness, salvation. You're in the way of the devil. You're in the way of yeah. error is, and untruth and unbelief and death. This is not just excluding Roman Catholic, medieval Roman Catholicism. It's it's excluding all human religion. Well, because Erasmus doesn't represent late medieval Roman Catholicism. He re, he re, he represents what the humanists did to late medieval Roman Catholicism, how they tweaked it. Mm, if you right. want to see actual late medieval Roman Catholicism, go read Cajetan's debate with Luther at, when they're talking at Worms. Because Cajetan's the Thomistic scholar of his generation. He's the guy. That's why he's sent to talk to Luther. Yeah. Because intellectually, Cajetan is a powerhouse. He is an intellectual powerhouse. Erasmus is basically trying to, again, reform the, the, the teaching of the papacy, reform late medieval Catholicism so that it is virtuous. That it exemplifies the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, which he doesn't see the Pope doing. He doesn't see Henry VIII doing this. He doesn't see the Lutherans doing this, especially Luther. But rather, Luther's pushback then is it has nothing to do with reforming public morality. It has nothing to do with behavior modification. 
Yes, those are all fruits of the gospel. Yes, you will be changed in your heart by the gospel, but it doesn't turn your heart toward what am I doing? It changes your heart to turn towards Christ and ask, what is Jesus doing for me? Right. So that's why it offends not just Roman Catholics and Protestants, but it offends Lutherans because it doesn't matter what denomination you hang your hat on at heart. Is it about Christ or is it about you? Is it about what I'm doing for God or is it about what God's doing for me? Because this is why Luther makes people uncomfortable. He doesn't allow for a middle ground. There's no neutral area for us to make up our mind whether or not we're going to serve Jesus today. And since there's no middle ground, we don't have a choice how we're going to serve Jesus, then that must mean that God is active and living and working to produce the fruits of the Spirit in and through us, for us and for our neighbor. And as you pointed out, uh, I went to church to prove to God my religiosity, and instead he preached the gospel to me. Hmm. Yeah, so at the heart, you know, all of our attempts at, no matter how we want to gussy it up, make it look good, you know, uh, we might even call it like Christian flourishing or something like that. Or, yeah, right. or Virtue signaling. Yeah, or in the past we call it church growth and evangelistic. Yeah. You know, and that's, a, that's an evangelistic congregation. And, or they're doing the, yes. that's true Christianity. They're doing the work of the gospel. They're the hands and feet of Jesus. And you're like, well, yes. Uh, that might, that actually might all be true, um, but it's not actually by effort or strength, right? Those are all fruits of, of the real gift. We don't want to hang our faith on it might be true. Yeah, by these we want kind of what is true outward um, things, right? Emotions and successes. and Right. That, yeah. It may be true, but we know that the truth is Jesus. And if Jesus is the right. truth and you think what you're doing is true Christianity, true piety, whatever, fine. Just hold it up to Jesus. Is mm-hmm. what you're saying the person of Jesus? Or is what you're saying something that exists in in my mind as an individual or maybe congregationally, organizationally exists, but going back to the Virgin Mary, going back to other things that aren't in the Bible that found their way into Christian, the Christian vocabulary over the years, what does this have to do with Jesus? And often what ends up happening is we use Jesus as a way of empowering ourselves. that my heart wants to justify me being like God, and since Jesus is nearby, I'm going to use Jesus to justify what I'm doing. Because how can you possibly criticize me if what I'm doing is Christ-like? Again, I don't want to be Christ-like. I want to be Christ-focused. <laughs> I want to be focused on the cross and not what I'm doing to appear. Because again, I don't want to climb on the cross for anybody. Paul points this out in Romans. Yeah, that's true. Uh, maybe I could climb on the cross for my kids. Maybe I could climb up on the cross for you or people I care about. But ask me to climb up on the cross for people I don't like. Forget it. Nuh-uh. I'm not dying for you. No way. No. That's the point, is that Jesus dies for his enemies, which are all of us. We all treat him as enemy. Or I should say, we treat him as an enemy, so he dies for those who call him their enemy. We're not the enemies of God. God isn't our enemy in that sense. He doesn't declare war on us, but rather we declare war on God. And the battlefield takes place in our heart and in our minds, to quote an old phrase from George W. Bush, and hearts and minds, baby. It's about hearts and minds. But that the gospel actually does what it says. Yeah. And the Christian life in a nutshell is God putting to death everything that hinders you from being in Christ. Always. That everything yeah. that pulls you away from Christ, everything that drives you away from Christ must be eliminated. And yet the things that he wants to eliminate from our lives are the things we think make us godly. 
right? The, the Heidelberg Disputation, that what we call, you know, meritorious, God calls mortal sins, and the things that God does that we call evil and immoral, he calls, uh, that's salvation. Yeah. There you go with your and categorical. And so everything again. is upside down and backwards. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's almost as if Luther thought this way for, well, since 1518 when he did the Heidelberg and yeah. uh, all that stuff. Luther was consistent in his language throughout his life. He just used terms and threw them away. But the language remains the same. The distinctions, law, gospel, hidden, revealed God, paradox, um, so forth and so on. Yeah. Paradox, exactly. We would call it paradox, the tension, the distinction, the dialectic, categorical, whatever you want to call it. But that he gets that from the Bible. Like I said, he gets that from the psalmist. He gets that from Paul. There is no synthesis. There's no middle ground. And that's the beauty of the bondage of the will is that's why it's Luther as most Lutheran because he is doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on the categorical way of understanding our relation to Christ, our relation to God, our relation to the Bible, our relation to ourselves. So that anything, that's why Luther says to Erasmus, you've, this is the hinge on which everything turns, that this is the foundation of the Christian religion because if there's any free will, if there's any of our choosing in relation to our salvation, we immediately make Christ irrelevant and of no use to us. All right. God isn't your enemy. Christ is proof positive of that. And the only thing yeah. your will can do is actually make him your enemy. <laughs> exactly. Sin and resistance. That's what you contribute to your salvation. Sin and resistance. It is. So what happens when we dive into the abyss? What happens when we get to the bottom? We find Christ. When we ascend to the tallest peak, we find Christ. Deepest, darkest woods, Christ. Into the cave, Christ. Into ourselves, what do we find? Sin and death <laughs> and yeah. the absence of Christ. And therefore, and yet at, even at the bottom of our sin and death, Christ became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That even when we descend into ourselves and discover nothing but sin and death, Christ became sin to sin and death to death and the devil to the devil, Satan to Satan, as Dr. Luther says, so that we might be set free from all these things. Set free to do what? To be in Christ. And to say, whatever is in Christ, it might be interesting, it might be provocative, it might be sexy, but I don't want to have anything to do with that because it's, it's not Christ. And this is... Yeah, free, at, to, free to serve him without fear. <laughs> right. And free to serve your neighbor without having to keep score. That's right. We're not free from our neighbor and God, we're free for. And this is why the Reformation happened. This is why the Reformation always happens wherever Christ shows up. That the Reformation didn't begin in 1517, 1518, 1528 whatever date you, it, the Reformation happens wherever Christ shows up with the gospel. Because when the gospel shows up, people are converted. People are elected. Sinners are converted and elected into the kingdom. They're translated into Christ's kingdom. And that's the offense of the gospel. The offense of the gospel is God elects sinners. And you don't become less sinful as you hang out with Jesus, but rather the more you hang out with Jesus, the more sinful you recognize yourself to be and your need for Christ increases. Yeah, yeah he's the light in the darkness, right? Exactly. And once you, once the light has come to you and you've been lost your whole life, like I was, then you're like, uh, don't turn it off and never let me go because it's there's monsters out there in the dark and I'm lost and blind and I don't know my way. So how about you just hold on to me <laughs> until everything is made light. That would be better. Yeah. And just ignore me when I pray for you to not remove that sin from me, not remove that burden from me. Just ignore that and just, just take it away. Because <laughs> I know that's getting in the way of me enjoying my relationship with you. So that's, that's the Reformation in a nutshell. If it ain't Christ, it's crap. <laughs> there's, there's a deep, 
deep reference. It's a Mike Myers reference right there. I, I knew it's not it was. Scottish, it's crap. Yeah I, I, yeah, I knew exactly what you had in mind there. It's not Jesus, it's crap. <laughs> Say it three so times. if I opened a Christian Maybe. bookstore, God help me. If I opened a Christian bookstore, that's what it would be called. If it's not Jesus, it's crap. <laughs> what do you have? What do you sell in this Christian bookstore? Jesus. What else? Nothing. <laughs> it's Jesus or it's crap. Because categorical thinking. That's right. That's why we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday. That's why we make a big deal of baptism. Mm-hmm. That's why we make so much of Jesus for you. Because anything that isn't Jesus for you is sin, death, lies, error, the devil. Darkness. It's nothing. Yeah. Darkness, it's no good. A lie. And therefore, as Lutherans, but as Christians in general, we want to be thinking categorically about the Bible, about God, about Jesus, even about ourselves. Whether we believe we have free will or not, we have to think categorically, what does this mean? What are the consequences of me saying I have some free will in relation to God and my salvation? Well, the consequence is you're saying, I don't need Jesus for that. And that's that's a death sentence. Mm-hmm. And yet we think we think we're actually doing God a favor by saying that. Erasmus did. Yeah. So let's wrap it up there okay. uh, with this Reformation episode. Go read the Bonner's Will. Go read the Large Catechism again because it's Gundabar. And Luther said they're his best works. Uh, wrestle with it and mm-hmm. enjoy it. And uh, it's a lifelong experience. Like the Brothers Karamazov, the Bonner's Will is something you experience. You don't just read. Uh, and happy Reformation Week. That might take you a while to get through all 400 pages or so, right? It might. It might. Take your time. Go slow. Yeah. Beginning. Or go from digest, the end to the beginning. Digest it. That's right. Um, and I'll put in a plug. I did a 15-minute uh, synopsis of the Bonnage Will and how to read it on the Thinking Fellows podcast. So go to the Thinking Fellows podcast over there at 1517, The Legacy Project, and look up that podcast I did. I did a long one on The Bondage of the Will, and then I did a short 15-minute summary of that to kind of help you, guide you with your reading if you're having trouble. Uh, but otherwise, again, as always, we, we thank you for supporting us. Go subscribe, go like us on iTunes, buy Gillespie's coffee because it's delicious and wonderful, and uh, I hope we pass the audition. like what you're listening to higher things podcasts are free for you but they aren't free to produce please consider supporting the higher things podcasts as lutheran as it gets gospeled boldly and the black cloister check out www.higherthings.org support for more information thank you for listening and thank you for your support